So good morning, everybody. Really happy to see you on this beautiful day. And welcome to the Sunday set. As most of you know, I think I'm Lyndall Johnson, one of the local Dharma leaders. I'm going to go ahead and get started with our um, Dharma talk for today, which is on the subject of anatta, or not-self. And I think of the three characteristics, probably most of us would agree that this feels like it's the most difficult. Dukkha and Anicca um, are easy enough to understand, you know, that suffering and impermanence. Not necessarily so easy to actually accept and be with, but, you know, we recognize that we have painful experiences and that things change. But Anatta, especially when you first hear about it, can feel like it's quite the mystery, not self what does that mean? So this is the first talk specifically in our series about Anatta, but I feel as if it isn't really such a new topic since we've been talking about it or talking around it the whole time we've been discussing the three characteristics. We've talked about um how the suffering or the dukkha that's associated with being attached to a certain image of ourselves, whether it's a good one that we're struggling to live up to or a bad one that we hate. We've talked about how becoming more aware of impermanence can show how those things that we think of as me actually change just like everything else and aren't as solid or permanent as we often assume. So maybe with these various discussions, including this topic, by now Anatta doesn't seem quite so unapproachable. Now, when we're first exposed to it, the idea of Anatta can seem like a kind of annihilation, as if we're being told that we don't exist. But actually, it isn't quite that. In fact, um, as the monk and translator Tanasero Bhikkhu says in one of his articles about this topic, in the suttas, the Buddha didn't actually say there was no self. And he relates a story when this wanderer, um, Vachagota, asked the Buddha, you know, just straight out whether there was a self or not. And the Buddha remained silent. He wouldn't answer him. And later the Buddha explained to his cousin and his attendant, Ananda, that if he responded with either a yes or a no to that question, either answer would be siding with a view that was too extreme. So maybe, I mean, I kind of take from that that it's more like our experience of self you know, living out our lives in our bodies with our histories, you know, is real enough in its way as far as it goes. But that at the same time, this self isn't nearly as solid or permanent or separate as we tend to think it is. Now, in our talks about dukkha and anicca, we've talked a lot about craving and clinging. And when we think about craving, we usually think about 
creating some object or some person or some experience. You know, the perfect job or a beautiful home or the perfect romantic partner. I mean, maybe sometimes it's even just a piece of chocolate cake, you know. (laughs) But in addition to these things, the teachings also talk about craving for becoming and non-becoming and for continued existence. So as well as craving for things, we also crave to be. We crave to become that ideal image of ourselves, you know, whatever that might be. For some, maybe it's to be physically beautiful or smart or successful in our profession or wealthy or famous or the perfect friend or mother or father or spouse. Maybe even to be the perfect meditator or maybe all of it. (laughs) And we crave not to be the way we feel we shouldn't be, too. Not to be ugly or powerless or a failure or unlovable. Whatever that thing is that we don't want to be, but deep down we're often afraid we really are. And then we crave simply for continued existence. We fear becoming nothing. We fear our own death. And all of these kinds of cravings are painful and all of them are wrapped up in our belief in a solid, permanent, and separate self. So as we begin to really investigate and understand the truth of anatta, we start to kind of unravel and unhook from these cravings that are so bound up in self and self-image. And so to give you a sense of this, I'd like to kind of go back to the olden days when we were doing the Sunday set at the yoga studio and families and children came and share a little story with you that's kind of a nice example of being caught in self-image. And it comes from the book Moom and Papa's Memoirs. So if you aren't familiar with the Moomins, they're the main characters in a set of children's books written by the Finnish author Tove Janssen. And the Moomins are these kind of creatures that are white and round and they look kind of like a hippopotamus and they look kind of like a pig, but not exactly like either one. And Moomin Papa is the father of the Moomin family. And this, in this little section of his memoirs, he's writing about an ocean voyage that he went on many years ago with his friends, the jockster, Hodgkins, and the muddler. And Hodgkins is an inventor who built the boat that they set to sea in. His nephew, the muddler, loves to collect things. And Jockster is this kind of laid back sort of fellow who just takes things as they come. And Moomin Papa is the sort of person who's really obsessed with becoming someone special. So he's totally caught up in self-image. He wants to be famous, to be an author, to be a great adventurer, and so on and so on and so on. So they're out to sea in the boat, and Moomin Papa says, and here I'm quoting from the book, he says, Sometimes when night drew close over the sea, I like to take over from Hodgkins at the helm. The moonlit deck that slowly rose and fell before me, the silence and the restless waves and clouds, and the solemn circle of the horizon, everything gave me the nice, exciting feeling of being terribly important 
and terribly small at the same time. Perhaps, however, more of the former, you know, being important. Sometimes I could see the jockster's pipe aglow in the dark when he came padding astern and sat down beside me. You'll have to admit that it's fun to do nothing at all, he said one night and knocked the ashes from his pipe against the railing. Nothing at all, I asked. I'm steering and you're smoking. Wherever you're steering us, said the jockster. That's quite another matter, I replied, because even then I had a logical mind. We were talking about doing things, not about what things were doing. Are you having forebodings again, I added, worried. And just to see what this means, the jockster a little while back had had forebodings when he sensed that this dangerous creature was in the area and maybe threatening them. So no, the jockster yawned. Puff, puff, it's all the same to me where we go. All places are all right. Good night, see you tomorrow. Cheerio, I replied. When Hodgkins relieved me at dawn, I mentioned in passing the jockster's strange and total lack of interest in his surroundings. Well, said Hodgkins, perhaps he really is interested in everything, only he doesn't overdo it. For ourselves, there's always one single interest. You want to become. I want to do. My nephew wants to have. But the jockster just lives. Simply lives, I said. Anybody can do that. Humph, Hodgkins said. Then he disappeared into his usual silence with a notebook in which he drew curious constructions that resembled cobwebs and bats. So you get the feeling from this little discussion that Hodgkins feels like maybe it isn't so easy to just live after all. And in fact, maybe it isn't so easy for most of us. We might feel that we're more like Hodgkins, who is really attached to his work, or the mother, who's attached to his possessions, or maybe Moom and Papa who really does crave becoming and is totally wrapped up in his self-image, his idea of who he should be. But then we have the jockster who isn't too worried about any of that, who's present for what happens. And, you know, when something needs to be done, he does it, but isn't too worried about things and just live. So maybe he's the one who's closest to being free from clinging to this idea of self. Now, if you read more of these books, or if you have read some of these books, you'll know that Moomin Papa creates a lot of grief for himself in his quest to be who he thinks he should be. He gets depressed and frustrated because he thinks he isn't living up to his ideals, and he drives his family crazy by dragging them along on these different adventures that he feels he just has to do to prove that he's the great explorer or he's the one in charge or whatever. Things that they don't really want to do, but he feels that need to be done. Of course, Hodgkins and the muddler have their own suffering too over their work and their possessions, but they're not quite so caught up in this self-image thing. But the jockster, he doesn't seem to suffer much in these ways. He seems, well, I don't know, pretty free. So how can we too become free of this burden of self 
self-image, self-judgment, self-expectation. And I think that starting to see through all this is really an important part and maybe an important gift of exploring and understanding anatta. So how do we come to get this understanding? Well, we've talked before about how seeing impermanence in that thing we call me is one good path to understanding. When we reflect on the changes we've gone through from birth to where we are now, changes in our bodies, in our jobs, in our roles in society, we recognize that we haven't stayed the same and we really can't define ourselves based on what we were in the past. We're not that thing anymore. But I think maybe even more helpful than that, at least it has been for me, is recognizing how those traits that we take so much as me aren't so permanent either. We often define ourselves as a certain types of people. We think, I'm a shy person. I'm an angry person. I'm a sociable person. I'm an anxious person and so on. And it might be true that those traits show up often as we go through our lives. But if we really take the time to look closely at our thoughts and emotions, as we do in meditation, we see that even if we think we're an angry person, there are plenty of times when anger isn't present. Even if we think we're a timid person, there are plenty of times when we're not afraid. And even if we think we're a sociable and outgoing person, there may be times when we just need to be quiet and be by ourselves. And so as we see these things in our meditation practice, we start to notice these things in our daily lives and we see that the traits we thought that were so much a permanent part of us aren't so permanent after all. Maybe the memories that convinced us that we really were a certain way, we begin to see are just memories not necessarily the way things are now. We're not our anger or our fear or our energy and enthusiasm or any of these things. They come and go depending on conditions. And I think, you know, certainly in, for myself, seeing this can be a really freeing thing, especially if we're caught up in a negative image of ourselves. So when we begin to see this impermanence, we start to see that this depression or this anger or whatever it is really isn't me or mine or what I am. It's something that might be present now, but it isn't always present. It's going to change. And if our tendency has been to hate ourselves and blame ourselves, for that trade and to feel like there's really something permanent and deeply wrong with us, we realize that we don't have to do that to ourselves, that these ideas, they really are not true. And the same thing applies to our clinging to craving for a particular self-image. We might start to see that this image is just an idea. It's not actually what we are, and even if it were, you know, we're not going to stay that way forever or even for very long. And we might start to realize that when we get caught up in this self-image and are so obsessed with trying to be the way we think we should be, we might not really be honest about how we really feel. 
or how things really are. There might be a lot in our emotional and mental life that we just don't see because we don't want to see it or think it shouldn't be there. And so it affects us in ways we don't realize. And we can't really address those kinds of things because we don't see them or won't see them. And so they cause suffering for us and maybe those around us too. And we might, as we start to examine this impermanence in what we call me, be able to see more clearly the difference between our idea of ourselves being this thing, whatever this thing is we want to be, and our actual experience of doing whatever it is that's associated with that image. So instead of lost in our daydream of what we'd like ourselves to be, we actually might connect with our real experience and be able to see more clearly what's really rewarding for us and satisfying for us. And that's a very healthy thing. So all of these kinds of things can start to come out in our meditation practice in, on the cushion and into our daily life as we see more clearly, as we really start to pay attention to our moment-to-moment experience. And when we start to see these things, it can really help to free ourselves from ways in which we're caught up in our ideas of self-image and the ways in which we're seeing things that aren't necessarily the way things really are. So these aspects of anatta that are maybe what we might call more psychological aspects, I think they're a really important practice. And finding some relief from this tyranny of self-image is really, really liberating and so much within the really, re, within reach of all of us. But we can go deeper than that and examine what the self is even below this level of history and personality and self-image. And especially in our more formal practice and maybe when we're on retreat and we can practice over a more extended period of time, we can understand anatta even on a deeper level and we really see it on a moment-to-moment basis. Some of you might be familiar with a famous quotation from um, 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 Suri Nisargadatta. Love tells me I'm everything and wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. And we can come to understand anatta through either of these two ways. And really, ideally, you know, understanding it both ways would be what we would wish. So wisdom tells me I'm nothing is the way of disillusion where we see the self is nothing solid, nothing permanent. Love tells me I'm everything might be the way of seeing the self as not separate, connected, arising through relationship, part of something larger than what we think of as ourselves. So this way of dissolution is a really classic part of Vipassana meditation. And when we turn our attention to the body, we see that our actual experience of what we call my body isn't such a solid thing, but this constantly changing mass of sensations, pulsing, burning, throbbing, warmth, coolness, and 
So am I. And I know many of us have experienced that in our meditation practice. We turn our attention to the mind. And here, you know, we might really be shocked until we kind of get used to it. Because instead of that nice orderly story of me and what I'm doing, when we really look deeper, we find chaos. Images of all sorts of things arise as if from nowhere. Thoughts, fragments of thoughts, memories and fragments of memories. And we really don't have much control over what might arise or how long it might last. And you kind of wonder, well, you know, <laughs> what's me and all of that? And as we continue in our meditation and become quieter and have more concentration and continuity of mindfulness, we might feel a kind of peeling back of all those layers of identity and identification that we normally surround ourselves with in the world. Our sense of our usual personality role might fall away. Our identification with the thoughts and emotions that arise and pass. Our sense of ourselves as being in control and making things happen. Those might fall away. Maybe pretty much everything might fall away except kind of a light sense of identification with whatever it is that knows these things are coming and going and happening in the mind and the body. You might have heard about the teachings of the five aggregates where we have the body with the sense doors that contact whatever it is out there around us. We recognize that experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. We recognize and name it, perception. Then there are those mental formations that arise, all those thoughts and emotions and memories. Then consciousness, this recognition that whatever is happening, the seeing, the hearing, the sense we are seeing, we are hearing. All these things that we identify with and work together to produce the experience of self that I'm seeing and knowing whatever it is to be seen. You know, this coming together and unforming happens all the time. So quickly we don't even realize it. And it feels like we're continuous. But in meditation, we can get kind of a sense of this thing I call me sort of being peeled back and falling apart until maybe there isn't much left. Except, as I was saying, this identification with the knowing. And if that disappears, well, hmm, I am nothing. And I think this place, when we start to get too close to that feeling, I think this is the place where we really get kind of unnerved, maybe afraid. This brings up our fears of death and annihilation and you know, we kind of push back. We don't want to experience this. Even if we kind of aren't so worried about our self-image or controlling things, there's still this craving for continued existence. And so when that feels threatened, we're like, ooh, ooh. And I certainly know I feel that in my practice. When things get a little bit too unformed, it's like, ooh. <laughs> um but even if we pull back and are, ooh, not sure I want to go there, we still get this glimpse of anatta, not so solid, not so permanent.
and we kind of know that this self is not what what we thought it was. And there is a little release from this clinging. And then, too, you know, when we really reflect on it, what's actually being seen, although it might not feel like that when we see the self moving toward this dissolution, isn't so much annihilation, but that this thing we call me is part of a process. It doesn't exist independently. It arises from conditions, passes, and arises again. And so in a way, we come around to the other pathway, the no separate self, where love tells me is every, I'm everything. So we might feel, um, feel this through a sense of interdependence, you know, the kind of conditionality of ourselves and so much of our existence where what we see and feel depends on so many other things. Or we might feel it also as suggested by um, Sri Nisargadanta Maharaj through love, maybe through metta, through compassion, through sympathetic joy, through a sense of connection we have with all beings. All of us going through the same kinds of sufferings, joys and sorrows, birth and death. Maybe in the caring that encompasses us and feels bigger than any one of us. Or maybe we find it in stillness, the acceptance of equanimity, a sense of that stillness from which all those other changing things emerge, a stillness in which all things come together. And when we think about this, maybe we find we're thinking about that Enzo symbol we saw from those ox herding pictures, all things merging into nothing, which at the same time is everything. But I kind of feel like here I'm starting to really get up into the ozone where I'm talking about this, but I don't know if I really understand myself exactly what I'm talking about. So I think I'll just leave it there with these hints of this. And I know in the coming weeks, others will talk more about anatta and about no separate self and that disillusion, all these other things. So we'll get many more views of this. So now let's just sit for a moment and maybe reflect again on this poem by Ryokan that I mentioned in our sit. If someone asks about the mind of this monk, say it is no more than the passage of wind in the vast sky. Yeah, hopefully like three or four people. And um, I'll give you around 15 minutes or so to discuss whatever you would like to discuss about this topic. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back. Hoping you had a, a good discussion. 
And so now we have some time for all of you to, if you want to, to share something maybe about what you talked about or about any, you know, questions or comments you might have about the talk or whatever is on your minds. And it looks like we've already got a hand up from Greg. So please, Greg, go ahead. Uh, so we had a fascinating discussion. And so uh, basically I had said that of, of all the wonderfully fascinating things about the practice is anatta to me, right? Because it's, especially when you first hear it, it's like heresy to a Western mind anyway. Um, but now it makes very good sense. But you commented <coughs> in your talk on a couple of things that really struck me, and I'm not entirely clear why. One of them was when you figure out the passage of the arising and the passing of the thoughts, right? There's, it's just random and chaos. I love that word because it is. And the other thing was, what happens? Do you identify with the knowing? That's a fascinating phrase. And the other thing you said was of the five aggregates, consciousness as one of the aggregates. And so if you could comment more on identifying with the knowing, because I still feel like it's me, even though I represent, I recognize these things. I feel like somebody's me in here doing this. I don't know. The other thing was um, consciousness as distinct from observing and awareness. And I'm not clear on that concept, on those concepts at all. Oh, wow. <laughs> you, you, you got 60 seconds. You know, yeah. Right? yeah. Well, I think the, the, the sense of identifying with the knowing, I mean, that's something that I know I definitely do. You know, even, even if some of these other parts sort of fall away, there's still this sort of sense of, I'm still here because I'm somewhat, somehow that which is aware of these things happening. And I think yeah. that is a very universal, practically, kind of thing that people do, you know, that. That's certainly what I do. I'm yeah. really clear on that. Very clear yeah. on that. Yeah. yeah. Because the, I, well, the idea that of not being there, surrender, just totally surrendering to the process is a little bit too frightening and difficult. And, and I think that this, I've heard that this, you know, sense that there is a me, even if you don't understand, if you understand it isn't that solid of a me. You know, it you was, just have that. <laughs> it resides somewhere else it in resides. the head. Yeah. Um, and then the, I'm, to be honest with you, when it comes to the, the consciousness of the aggregates and like awareness, I mean, there, I, I am also somewhat confused about some of these things because of the different ways it can be defined. I mean, in a way the consciousness in the aggregates, they sort of talk about, you know, ear consciousness, eye consciousness. So it's sort of a, uh, I know this kind of feeling of, I know that I'm seeing this thing, or I know that I'm hearing this thing, or I know that I'm thinking this thing. <laughs> and then there's a sense of awareness being something different from that kind of 
consciousness in the sense of a knowing that holds all of these phenomena. But different schools of Buddhism, I think they I, they define it different ways. And I myself am a, am a little bit unsure about all the different ways. So I don't want to go too far with yeah. it. If somebody else has some thoughts about this that they would like to share, that would be be great. But but my I'll be asking my understanding soon. about the consciousness in the aggregates is not so much this sort of cosmic consciousness sort of idea, but more the knowing I'm seeing, I'm knowing I'm hearing, I'm knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thanks, Linda. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Great question. We could go on forever about these. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Anybody else? Okay. Julie. You can go ahead and unmute yourself and. Got it. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Great talk. I really uh, enjoyed it. And. Um, I, I shared this with the group and I just wanted to um, <clears throat> share it here with everyone that um, I was uh, last week I was here and I was in this really lousy space. I was at the end of COVID and um, and I know Lindley, you know, cause you were in my yeah. breakout group and I was just losing it. You know, <laughs> and I, was, I was like thinking, Oh my gosh, this is so unskillful. And I was uh, really confused about uh, back then about why is it that you're, um, you know, you're encouraged to sort of be with these emotions and, and, and let them exist and understand that everything's passing. But why is it that sometimes um, things feel so real and permanent and it's always the ones you don't want, right? <laughs> Um, and so I, you know, I was really reflecting on that a lot because I'm thinking I'm supposed to explore this. And then it occurred to me that I was, you know, um, well, I went back and I did a bunch of reading and, uh, what was really helpful to me was this whole business of just recognizing the difference between, um, sort of a, a wholesome feeling and a wholesome mind state versus an unwholesome one. And, going, yeah, this is, you know, okay, I see you, but, you know, don't get into that, you know, Greg, I was in Greg's group too, and, and he was talking about, oh, yeah, that's the second arrow, um, but anyway, I just wanted to sort of publicly uh, thank the people who were supportive of me, and to announce that, yes, that was indeed impermanent, it felt like forever, but it actually only lasted a couple of hours, um, so, um yeah, grateful to be here. That's all. Mm -hmm. Grateful to have you here, and and thanks a lot for your sharing. And I think also, Julie, you sort of touched on something that is good for everybody to keep in mind, that this is not such an easy <laughs> practice. I mean, we in, we're encouraged to just be with what's there, but sometimes what is there is really a strong attachment to a very – unpleasant feeling mm -hmm. or a strong identification and, and so sometimes we're just really caught up 
And all we can do is recognize, yeah, I'm just really caught up and stuck. And that's the way it is right now. Because um, it's not like, you know, oh, just let it be. And boom, we let it be. It's like we don't let it be until we see it, we see it, we see it. It hurts, it hurts, it hurts. Finally, something lets go and it isn't even really under our control necessarily. So just to everybody, don't ever beat yourself up because you feel like you're not able to be equanimous enough or this or that enough. Just be with what's there and recognize it's hard for everybody. <laughs> it's it's one of the many reasons to appreciate this group, to just feel safe enough to be like, yeah, I'm not feeling, you know, really like a great Buddhist practitioner at the moment. <laughs> well, you're not alone. <laughs> see anybody else a big thank you for bringing back Moomin's papa oh, yes. oh my god it felt so good to hear that story again oh i loved it i missed those stories and thank you yeah i miss the stories too i couldn't resist bringing back that story because he that Moomin papa is just such a perfect example of someone as you'll find if you read those books that is totally consumed by self-image and becoming so you know you sort of see it in everything he says and and you see the trouble it causes him too so he's a good example yeah i second that about bringing back the story books that we used to share it just kind of you know they were kids books but we got so much out of them and there was this uh levity and um yeah aliveness so thank you so much that was very um enjoyable lindell yeah you're welcome maybe we'll do more of it and somebody asked what the book was and i wrote the answer did i spell moomin correctly m-o-o-m-i-n yes okay Yeah, exactly. Yes, you're right. <laughs> That's it. Oh, wow. I You can buy those on bookshop.org, and um, <laughs> they give 10% of every purchase to independent bookstores. Oh, what a great idea. Yeah, bookshop.org. And I guess it's time to move on to announcements because we're almost at 11:30. So there's quite a bit of stuff actually going on this month. Um first on Saturday Saturday June 10th the Sims Climate Action Group is going to be holding a walking meditation at Seward Park from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. is that correct Lauren? Yes. Yes, maybe 2.30, but that's about the time. Yeah. Great. So everybody's welcome to come. There's more information on the Sims website about where to meet, where to park, how to get there on public transportation, and all those sorts of things. So you don't need to register. You can just show up. And it should be a really and, lovely way to connect and be in nature. Yeah. 
we sorry to interrupt you, but we just wanted to say that there is um, an LGBT event going on at the next parking lot up, but it's not a big event. It's not like the opening. It's a family. So we don't we think that there will not be a lot of competition for parking. But just to give you a heads up, there might be. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. (laughs) Thank you. And let's see. And then um, on, oops, come back here. On Friday, June 16th, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., Sims and the Clear Mountain Monastery are going to be co-sponsoring a, a Dhamma talk followed by questions and answers with Luang Por Pasano, Ajahn Kovalo, Aya um, Santusika, Ajahn Nisabo, and Aya Chitananda. And this will be held in person at the University Friends Center, or you can also uh, join online via the link on the SIMS website. And you don't need to register. You can just uh, show up and um, either in person or online. And this is a really wonderful um, cooperative event that will give us a chance to hear from and um, have questions and answers with some very, uh, the Luang um, Porpasano is a very senior monk in the Thai forest lineage, so it'll be a, something special to hear from him and from the nuns and from uh, monks also, so something to attend. And then on Saturday, June 17th, the Clear Mountain Monastery is going to be holding a robe offering ceremony at St. Mark's Cathedral from 9.30 a.m. to 2 p.m., and you're all welcome to jo- to attend in person or join um, via Zoom. And there's more information about it at the Clear Mountain Monastery website. You can just Google them and find it. And there's a variety of events, so you might be interested in that. And then on June 24th, uh, Tim Guile is going to be leading a Day of Mindfulness at the University Friends Center from 9 to 4.30. This is the final event for the introductory meditation course, but everybody is encouraged to attend if you would like to, and it's a really nice way to have a little opportunity, you know, for for us to, you know, do a little more extended practice. And it's a really good support for the beginners, too, to have some more experienced practitioners there. So you can go in person or online. Now, for this event, you do need to register and indicate whether you'll be in person or online. And then finally, I want to let you know that we won't be having a Sunday sit on June 18th, Sunday, June 18th, because the local Dharma leaders will be attending a special meeting with Clear Mountain Monastery folks. And so we'd encourage you instead maybe to attend um, the robe ceremony on Saturday with Clear Mountain or just, you know, join on Monday night or Thursday night to the Sims offerings then. Lindell, what's a robe offering? Well, it's a kind of a ceremony where the community offers robes to the monks and nuns that they support. It's sort of like a ceremony of like offering what them what they need for their well-being and livelihood. 
But I don't know that much about it. I haven't been to work before either. So, but it's basically that. But there will be some the ceremony and some Dharma talks, sharing of food, a variety of things. Great. So I think I will end with that. Let's just sit together for a moment to close. And as we do that, perhaps taking a little bit of time to bring to mind people that are close to us who perhaps need a little bit of our support, the merit we've generated. Maybe thinking especially of Jerry now and wishing him well and rapid healing from his stroke so he'll be with us again. May all beings, whoever they are, share in the merit of our practice. May their hearts be at ease. And may we find refuge in our kindness and connection with each other. May we be at ease and at peace. Thank you. Really good to see everybody today. Enjoy the rest of this lovely day.